0: If you will please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 925. Acts 16. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 15. Uh, Just to give you a heads up, I'm kind of, I've been so engrossed in going through through the book of Acts, I have not hit the point where I want to cut it off yet (laughs) for the summer, so uh, we are at least going to make it through chapter 17 before we get into kind of a summer series, so sorry, we're going to be in Acts for a while. (laughs) Um, As it is, though, I'm excited to get into this text with you. I I think, I hope this will be a, a practical, helpful word for you this morning. Let me start with a practical question as you're finding your places. How do you know, how do you go about knowing God's will for your life? As you, as you face a decision, how do you decide what to do and know what God would have you to do? We make decisions every day. But how would you, let's say that after the service someone comes to you and says, I've got a big decision and I need you to help me decide to know what God would have me to do. What would you, how would you explain that to somebody? As disciples of Christ, Jesus has called believers to follow him. So how do we actually go about doing that? We all face critical times in our life when we need to make big decisions. So how do we know when God is calling us one way and not another? When I was in eighth grade, our family moved from northern Kentucky to northeast Georgia. My dad had just finished up his Ph.D., uh, and it, we were transitioning to a new, another church. He had been kind of looking uh, for a while, and this uh, an opportunity opened up at a church near our grandparents, and it, was, it seemed quite obvious that's where we were going. That's where we ended up going. But as my dad was considered for the position, I remember traveling down ahead of time so he could preach and so the church could meet us and we could meet them. And I remember that Sunday I went by myself. I, my sister may have been with me, but... We went to the youth Sunday school class, and I remember the teacher asking me quite plainly, what makes you think that God is calling you and your family to this church? And I remember just kind of feeling a little bit of a a tightening in my chest. And that's a lot of pressure to put on an eighth grade kid. Uh, I was already kind of overwhelmed with the whole newness of everything. It was summer so it was hot and we were meeting in an upstairs room so it was really hot and then it got really hot when he asked me that question. Uh, It felt like I was being tested and I felt like my answer was going to impact what people thought about our family and about my dad. So in a moment I was kind of afraid I was going to say something to mess things up and I I don't think that that teacher, I got to know him better later and I don't think he meant to do that but his question definitely caught me off guard and I kind of was at a, at a loss of what to say. I mean, after all, how did we know that this is where God was leading us? Everything felt right. There was a lot to be excited about with the prospect of moving closer to family and new opportunities, making new friends. I wasn't looking forward to leaving the church that I had grown up in, but I had a certain peace about it and even excitement about it. I don't remember exactly what I said to him, but it it was something, it was something like that. Uh, We we were excited to see what God had in store. The door was clearly open. We were excited to follow what we saw as God leading us that way. I think that's essentially what I said to him, and then I thought, I have no idea where this is going to (laughs) go. I'm not really sure it was fair for my teacher to have asked me that to speak on behalf of my whole family in that moment. After all, it's not like I had a choice in the matter anyway. But his question was one worth asking, and it's probably a reason why that moment has stuck with me ever since then. How do we know where God is leading us to go? And how do we know what he's calling us to do in any given moment? If we're honest, I think we'll all agree that that question plagues the minds of a lot of people, especially even believers. It can be a a complex, complicated thing. Knowing God's will for us in a moment of decision is something we should all want to know. But sometimes it's just kind of hard to say. Perhaps you've wrestled with a situation like that before. Maybe you're wrestling with that situation right now. So how do we face it? Well, God has not left us directionless on this matter. And our passage this morning holds some important directions for us regarding how we should wait on the Lord as he makes his will known to us. So let's begin by reading our text together. If you will, please stand as we read Acts 2 chapter 16, verses 6 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. And they, that's Paul and Silas and Timothy, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. The Bible teaches us that God is sovereign, that he is the ruler of all things. He rules over the affairs of this world, including the decisions of men, working them according to the pleasure of his will and his good purpose. He does this, there's a mystery in this, he does this without committing any violence to the will of those, those creatures, and he often and typically works through the means of his creation to accomplish those purposes as Acts 8.28 assures us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That would not be true if God were not sovereign. The doctrine of God's sovereignty assures us that he is in control, that he is distinct from his world, but that he is also truly and effectively at work in it and that there is nothing that can upset the purpose for which he has made his creation. The doctrine of God's sovereignty comes really as a huge relief because it means that God's promises and God's purposes are never at risk. Nothing ever comes to him as a surprise, and the things and events that may seem to us to be setbacks really have a place and a purpose in God's perfect plan. It's a doctrine that assures us as we seek to be obedient in all the places and all the situations where he's called us and set us to be. As we look at Acts 16, we see something of the mystery of God's providence, guiding Paul and his missionary group in a direction which they did not expect. They were, in fact, trying to get somewhere else. We see God closing doors and opening others and doing so in such a way and at such a time that only he could have coordinated it and accomplished it. So as we look at this passage, we learn something about the way we should think about decision-making as we seek to be obedient to the will of God. There's a lot of information to do, a lot to do with informing our hearts in how to wait on the Lord in his timing and also in how to labor In the Lord, in what He calls us to do. So this morning, I'm just I'm hoping that this will just simply equip you as you seek to obey the Lord in His direction. As we look at how God directed Paul, Silas, and those who were with them, we want to see and respond to three things. So I have kind of three questions for you, which are are going to be our points this morning, and that has to do with this: What do we do when God shuts a door? What do you do when God shuts a door? Then what do you do when God opens a door? How should we respond to God opening a door? And finally, how do we rely on God as we make decisions? So three practical questions that I think are answered in this text I want to explore with you this morning. So first of all, what do we do when God shuts a door? The summer before I graduated from seminary, I sat down with my pastor over a cup of coffee in a local Starbucks to discuss the future. With my final semester on the horizon, I was excited. I was getting ready to transition into pastoral ministry. I had had already completed my undergrad in Bible. I was completing my MDiv in Bible. I'd been working on this for seven years. I was really ready to get going. And as I, I had asked Greg to meet with me because I wanted to get advice from him on kind of how to proceed, I was, I was hoping he might also be willing to use some of his connections to help me in the search process. And so we met together, and he listened to me, and then he gave me some advice that I don't well, I wasn't really pleased with at the moment. <laughs> uh, he, he was glad to hear about my desire to go into ministry, but then he kind of challenged me a little bit. He said, look, up until this point in your life, Everything has changed for you every four years. Now you're married, you're an adult, and all of that change is going to slow down. So before you rush off into ministry, consider if God would call you to wait two or three years and just learn to be a faithful church member. He said other things as well, wise things. I don't remember those things because I was preoccupied with what he just told me. That was not what I wanted to hear him say. I wanted to hear him say, yeah, actually, there's a place that's looking for someone to serve with them, and you'd be a great fit. Send me your resume, and I'll, I'll get you connected. That's what I wanted to hear him say. He didn't say that. I was tired of waiting. I had a, I had a burning desire to get into pastoral ministry. It felt like my heart would burst if that didn't happen soon. I, I had heard Greg say this sort of thing to others. So I just kind of wrote this off as advice that he probably said to every other seminary graduate that was about to leave, just trying to keep people at the church. So I didn't really listen. I, that, that summer, I started sending out resumes to churches in all sorts of places. And I got to a point I couldn't even keep track of how many I'd sent. Well, uh, time went on, and I got pretty discouraged because... Sometimes, as I'd send out resumes, I'd hear nothing. Other times, the church would let me know I was being considered, and then I'd get rejected. And then uh, a few times, I actually made it into the final candidates to be considered, and then, uh, sorry, we're going with some, a different direction. And it's like Greg's advice became a bit of a prophecy, because for two and a half years, I kept tugging at a door that just wouldn't open. Talk about a challenge. Up until that point, God had flung every door wide open. He had provided bountifully for every need. I was so convinced God was calling me into ministry, I just could not fathom why this door wouldn't open. I mean, this was leading up to everything I'd been preparing for, and the door wouldn't open. What I didn't know is that while I wrestled with all this, I actually remember a conversation I had with my boss, when I got my five-year plaque working at Aldi, and I looked at my boss and I said, you do not know how hard I have tried to not get this. (laughs) I didn't know what God was doing. And, and, And I don't just mean in terms of the situation. He was working on me. He was working on Ellie. And he was using us to serve others in the church that we were already at in ways I hadn't really anticipated looking back, I can see now that all those closed doors had a purpose. God hadn't forgotten me. He had a plan, and it involved saying no to me many, many times, <laughs> something which we see him doing here in Acts 16 in verse six, verses 6 through 8. Now, at this point, Paul is on his second missionary journey Last week, we looked at how Luke had described how Paul and Barnabas had both desired to go and check on the churches that were planted in Cyprus and Galatia, which they had done on their first missionary journey, and we saw how they get into a hot argument with each other about whether or not to bring John Mark with them, how they then separated from each other, with Barnabas headed to Cyprus with Mark, and Paul headed to Lystra and Derbe, and then the other cities uh, that were northwest of there with a man named Silas. Now, Luke doesn't give us a ton of detail about Paul and Silas' time in those cities. We know they pick up Timothy and bring him along with them, uh, and he just simply tells us that as they went, the churches in these places were strengthened and encouraged, and, and we see them continuing on. Now, the original purpose of the trip was to go and check on all the churches that had been planted across Galatia, but that is not the only reason why Paul and Silas set out. They were, also, they were eager to preach the gospel in new places. So as we come to verse 6, Luke tells us about how they headed west through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Now, I recognize as we read about these places, this is not like me describing uh, the the landscape of Wisconsin for you. So basically what you need to know is that across Asia Minor, which is what we know as Turkey, um, Paul and Silas are moving west towards the regions of uh, that are in Greece and Macedonia. So we're headed we're headed west. So as they go, they are excited to preach the gospel in new places. Now this is exciting. The gospel's headed into places that have never heard it. Paul and Silas are being true to their calling. They are going and sharing the good news of Jesus's death and resurrection in places that have not heard it yet. And judging from Luke's description, uh, we can see it's very likely they were making their way along uh, a path that's known the Via Sebaste, which which would take them to the city of Ephesus, which is the capital of the Roman province of Asia. When you read Asia here, we are not talking about China. We're talking about Asia center. Asia is enormous. So we're talking about the west end of Asia here. At this point, everything is on track. This, this looks really good. But then, much to our surprise, Luke tells us that they were not allowed to enter into Asia. Specifically, he says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now that is surprising to hear. So, what we're seeing is that it was in the heart of Paul and Silas and Timothy to go one way, and God says no. No explanation of why, no explanation of how they came to this conclusion, just a simple statement that God did not allow them to go into Asia. The way was shut. It's the first time we've seen something like this happen in Asia. Up to this, in the book of Acts, up until this point, it's all been open doors. So this this is a little different. So then we, we we move on. We go to verses 7 through 8. And Luke says, when they'd come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. Now Bithynia contained a lot of important cities uh, that were on the port, that were port cities on the Black Sea. This would have been northwest. And having prevented them from going to Asia, it seems that it would make sense that Paul and the others would head this way. But again, Luke says, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. He closed the door. And so, passing by Mycaea, we're told they went down to the city of Troas. Now, uh, Troas was a port city on the Aegean coast, uh, which is located about 10 miles away from the historic city of Troy. You've all heard of Troy, right? This is the same area of the world, about 10 miles away from there. As we're looking at this, the key thing that stands out about Luke's account is that God was not allowing Paul, Silas, and Timothy to enter into these places. And I'm sure that they, just like we, are left scratching our heads trying to figure out why would God have prevented them from doing something so good? Why would God say no? Well, the truth is, I don't have an answer for you. All I know is that God had a different purpose and plan for Paul and his companions. It's not as if God didn't care about these places. The gospel, in time, does come to Ephesus where it produces great fruit. Eventually, God allows Peter to go there, I mean, Paul to go there, and it becomes a church that is very near and dear to his heart. We have the book of Ephesians that is written to that church, and you can sense Paul's love for those believers as he writes. But all of that was going to happen in God's perfect timing. Right now, God had another task for Paul, Silas, and Timothy, something that was unexpected and amazing. Now, I'm sure you, I've heard it many times, and I'm sure you've heard it too, that when God shuts one door, he opens another. I I think there's there's a certain amount of truth to that. But it also needs to be said that God does all of that in his own perfect timing, When when God shuts a door like this, it can test your faith. It can test your resolve. It can make you question things that you have always taken for granted. Closed doors take as much faith as open ones. In fact, sometimes they take even more. Closed doors develop patient faith that waits on the Lord. Closed doors challenge us They require us to test the motives of our heart, to ask us why we want to do that thing. They show us the depth of God's goodness, and they require us ultimately to submit ourselves and our own desires to him. When God says no, it's not because he wants you to be miserable. It may feel that way in the moment, especially when a closed door is so disappointing, But God does not close that door to make you miserable. If he closes a door, it's actually because he's committed to make you truly happy. It is because he has our best in mind. It is because he is resolved to make us like our Savior Jesus, who waited patiently on his Father and perfectly accomplished his will. God is patient. At just the right time, he sent Moses to Egypt to free the Israelites from their slavery. At just the right time, God sent Jonah to Nineveh so that they repented and were spared. At just the right time, God sent his own son to save us through his work on the cross. At just the right time, God opened the door to Asia and the city of Ephesus. And we may trust that at just the right time, he will do the same for us directing our path in the way we should go. Patience is hard. We want things now. We, we must learn to wait upon the Lord. And so we find throughout the Bible, constantly God calling us to wait upon him. In Psalm 37, David charges us, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. "...trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him." Those are beautiful words from David, and we need to hear them. Because it's hard to wait. <clears throat> Let me encourage you, friends, don't despair if God closes a door on you. Trust. Trust his purpose. Trust his plan. Trust his motives. Trust his power. Trust his timing. Faith is proved. In moments like these faith is grown in moments like these bitter as of as the disappointment may feel in the moment closed doors have a divine purpose to actually direct us on the path where God has called us to go that brings us to our second point what do we do when God opens a door at the time when God prevented Paul and the others from going into these places the reason for that was not necessarily clear to them it was clear to God and in verse 9, it becomes clear to us as well. God is sending them to Macedonia. Luke tells us that while they were at the city of Troas, a vision came to Paul in the night of a man, who apparently was very distinctly Macedonian, standing there, urging him, and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, this is pretty amazing. We, we don't see this recorded very often in the Bible. If we're always waiting on God to send us a vision before we act, you're going to be waiting a long time. This is unique for Paul. It would be unique for us as well. But God, in this critical moment, did this. And now, suddenly, we can see why God closed the door on all those other places. In verse 10, Luke tells us that when Paul had seen the vision, he concluded that God was calling them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. And immediately, he and the others began preparations to travel there. Now, there is a subtle language shift here, I just want to point it out to you, that indicates that Luke actually met Paul here in Troas and joined him. Luke, as you know, is the the man who wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel of Luke. And Notice here, starting in verse 10 and continuing on, Luke begins to, instead of saying they, he begins to say we. So Luke is in the party now. He's, he's part of Paul's missionary group. He's not just a historian who's recounting Paul's journey as a researcher. Luke actually lived this with Paul and Silas and Timothy. Now what we know of Luke is, is eh, we know a little bit, we know he was a doctor. We don't know exactly when or how he became a believer, but we know that he was a dear friend, a dear friend of Paul. And it wouldn't surprise me if he became a believer through Paul's testimony here at Troas it's likely that he is actually from Macedonian, uh, specifically the city of Philippi, where Paul is now headed. He includes a little extra information here that he doesn't include about other places, and his description of Philippi as a leading city of the district of Macedonia, mm, there's a couple cities that could probably say that. So it actually kind of reflects. it's thought that he's reflecting some local pride here. Now, Philippi was an important city Uh, If you are a study of ancient history, which I don't know if any of you are, but you may know that it's the city where Mark, Antony, and Octavian fought and defeated Brutus and Cassius in the Second Roman Civil War. So, important historical city. It was named for Philip II of Macedon, who is the father of Alexander the Great. So, this is a lot of history here. Important city. Philippi was known for its rich agriculture, and it also had mountains around it which were known for holding gold. But what it was most known for is it was home to a famous medical school, which is where we assume that Luke actually trained. Now, all that aside, the main thing to notice here is the way that Paul and the others responded to this clear leading of God, which directed them here having been prevented by God from going to these other places, when the door is open for them to go, we see Paul and the others wasting zero time when they perceive that God is leading them this way. As good soldiers of Christ, they are hurrying to the call of their captain to bring help and the gospel to Macedonia. While they waited patiently for God to guide them where he wanted them to go, when God made that direction clear, they responded quickly and they responded obediently. When, when you're waiting for God to open a door, it is, how do I say this? Uh, it's very easy to become lazy. It's easy to slip into a comfortable routine that ends up blinding you to opportunities here and now. It, it's hard to persevere and maintain a tender heart when it seems like everywhere you're turning, God is saying no. Paul and Silas and these others were diligent to answer the call the way that they were because they were looking to see where God would have them to go. They were waiting actively, we might say. They were able to recognize it, and so they responded to the leading of the Lord with eagerness because they had waited well. Sometimes when you're waiting for the Lord to open a door for you, you can get romantic ideals about what that work might be like. You can imagine to yourself, it will be so much better when I'm there. Oh, won't that be great? And then the door opens and you realize it's gonna take a lot of effort and work. It took logistics and planning for Paul and the men who were with him to get to Macedonia. They had to find a boat. They had to make plans. They had to get food. They didn't know where they were going. So now Luke is going with them to guide them. All of these things were things they had to do to actually answer this call. They had to sail to Samothrace and, and then on to Neapolis before they finally arrived to Philippi. It took them days to get there, but the work didn't dissuade them from answering the call. They embraced it and they went. When God opens a door for us, we must commit ourselves to the work. Having set our hand to the plow, we must not look back. We must press on toward the call that God has given us and go through it with all the strength and the energy that he supplies. Paul and Silas and the others who were with him show us what it looks like to wait patiently on the Lord, and they also here show us what it looks like to labor diligently for God when he opens that door. They apply themselves to the work and as they did, we see that God did not waste their effort. In verses 11 through 15, we start to see why God didn't allow Paul and the others to go to Asia or by Byanthea. It, it wasn't because God didn't care for those places. It was because he was sending them to Philippi to, make, to begin the work there, starting with a woman named Lydia. Now, as noble of a city as Philippi was, it was a city in darkness. Luke describes how when they arrived there, they stayed there for some days, and then on the Sabbath, he says they left the city going out of the gates and headed to a river where they had heard there was a place to pray. Now, in the Jewish tradition, a city had to have 10 Jewish men in order to have a synagogue. We know that Paul's typical, when he would arrive at a city, he would, on the Sabbath, he and his friends would go, and he would preach the gospel at that synagogue. Well, If a city did not have at least 10 Jewish men, if they didn't have that quorum, then what the Jewish instruction was was that the Jews in the city were to go outside the city on the Sabbath to pray, typically as some sort of water source. So what we're seeing here about Philippi is that there's not even 10 Jewish men for them that that would have been God-fearers at least who would have been worshiping God on on any given Sabbath. So it's very very small. What the the witness here is is tiny. Luke makes no mention of any men at the river itself. In verse thirteen, he says that when they came to this place for prayer, they met a number of women who they then began to speak with about the gospel. Now, this friends, this is a we we kind of set Philippi up right. This is a very small start. Okay, there is nothing there you might think that Paul would have had better opportunities elsewhere, and that may have been the case. But that wasn't God's plan. Among the women who heard Paul speak that day, we're told there was a lady named Lydia, who was from Thyatira, and who was a seller of purple goods. We're told that she was a worshiper of God, so she wasn't a Jew, but her heart belonged to the Lord. And when she heard the gospel, God opened her eyes To believe the good news. Not only that, God worked to open the eyes of her whole household and Luke tells us in joy that they were baptized. As a seller of purple goods, Lydia would have been fairly well off. This was a unique skill that women from Thyatira had and they made some serious money off that and we expect that she probably moved to Philippi to do that. So she had enough to own a house and we're told by Luke that she opened it to Paul and the others as a place for ministry. And actually she prevailed upon them to make it a base of operation so they could reach the rest of the city. That, what an amazing testimony. Friends, this, this is actually the beginning of the church in Philippi, a church that, judging from Paul's letter to the Philippians, was near and dear to his heart. And all of this came about because God shut the door to other places and opened this one, small and unassuming as it was, to bring the gospel here. Lydia, for her own part, used the resources that God had provided for her to support that ministry so that others could hear the good, the good news as well. She gave her house to be used by Paul and his friends as they went to preach the gospel to the rest of the city. And as we'll see, God honored that. There's a lot that's going to happen in Philippi, but it starts here. It's a small beginning, but it's a faithful witness to the way God uses small, unassuming things and situations to accomplish amazing things. God took an almost non-existent witness in a pagan city that couldn't even meet in the city, and he turned into a vibrant, beloved church. So what I would say to you, friends, as we see the way Paul and his friends handled this situation, is to commit yourself to doing the work that God has called you to do. It may not be glamorous, but it is important. Pray for opportunities and look for them. Don't get stuck in your routine so that you don't see those opportunities. God provides them. He answers those prayers, and he loves to use his people in these ways. What's more, I would encourage you to think about the way that you can use what God has provided you to further the ministry of the gospel. Think about your own home the way Lydia thought about hers as an opportunity to show others the gospel through your love and hospitality. Use your job and your position to love others, to show people what it means to be a faithful worker for the kingdom. Use your hobbies and your interests to reach people, to make connections with people so that you can share the good news of Jesus with them. Think about What opportunities God has given you, and be obedient to step through that open door, trusting that God will never waste the effort, because we can trust if He doesn't want you to go through that door, He will shut it. Now that leaves us with one final point to consider: How do we rely on God when we make our decisions? When I graduated from high school, a good friend of mine gave me a book by a guy, pastor named Kevin DeYoung, called "Just Do Something." It's a fantastic read, um, and and it addresses the paralysis that seems to come on well-meaning Christians who are trying to do God's will, but they're waiting for God to show them what to do, and so they don't end up doing anything. It's a book that stuck with me for a long time, and I've always found it extremely helpful. You know, as we look at this, Luke doesn't tell us how God communicated to Paul and Silas about why they should not go up to Asia or Bianthea. He does make it clear that that God shut the door on that opportunity. The time simply wasn't yet. It was time for something else. If Paul's vision was all we had to go on, we might think that we need to have an experience like that in order for us to know God's will for our lives. But that isn't the case either. In fact, this was a really exceptional experience. Most of the time we see Paul simply taking, going the way whichever way the road took him Taking any opportunity to share the good news with whoever he came across. The fact of the matter is, which Kevin Young makes in his little, the point that he makes in his, in his little book, is that God has already given us instructions for what he wants us to do. He has called us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation and to submit ourselves to him. He has called us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves. He has called us to forsake sin and to pursue righteousness. He has given us his spirit and his holy word to instruct us. He has not given us a roadmap or a list of instructions that are meant to dictate every decision we make. Instead, he has called us to live by his word, by faith, to live together, and to love him and to do what is in our hearts to do all for the glory of Christ. That is... Is the key compass bearing that God has given us to direct us in how we are to go. So when we come to decisions of importance, I fall that I find that they all they they fall into one of three categories. They fall into an issue of morality, an issue of wisdom, or an issue of preference. Issues of morality have to do when God has, with, have to do with what God has commanded us to do and not to do. These are issues which God has spoken very clearly on the matter and has called us to obedience. Let it be known the Spirit of God will never lead you to do something that is contrary to what is said in the Word of God. The same Spirit will not lead you to do something that is contrary to what He has already inspired here in the Bible. God has made these matters plain and clear in His Word, and to say otherwise is really to bear false witness about Him. Issues of wisdom fall into a category of where something may not be prohibited or commanded by Scripture, but it's still a matter that needs to be considered well. Maybe it will really affect your life. Maybe it will really affect the life of someone else. And we need to be thoughtful about how we act. These are issues where perhaps you have Christian freedom to do something, but it would be wise for you not to do that thing. Or perhaps there's something that might be holding you back otherwise, and you need to be spurred on to do that. This is where it's important to be part of a local church, where you have other brothers and sisters who are committed to you, who are committed for you, who you are in a relationship of mutual submission to, who can help you parse through those difficult decisions. Now, issues of preference, they come down to those day-to-day decisions that we make, which aren't moral and ultimately don't carry a ton of weight in the grand, grand, grand scheme of things. Now, that is not to say they're not important, but they aren't issues to get wrapped up about. Choosing to eat one cereal in the morning over another, choosing to attend one event over another, and so on. Most of most decisions that we make in a day actually kind of fall into that category. And as believers, when, when we've determined that a decision falls into that category, the general advice is to love God and do what you want. Enjoy the world that God has made to his glory. As we make these decisions, we do so by faith, trusting that God's hand is at work even in the smallest of things and in the greatest of things. His hand guides us in ways that we do not know. He shuts doors that we didn't even know were open. He opens doors that we didn't, never anticipated to be open to us. When we rest in him, we're able to trust that he, will shut the, that he will shut the right doors and that he will open the right doors. In pursuit of the will of God, we really need to ask three questions. Is this consistent with what God has said to me in his word? Is this wise for me to do? Can I do or enjoy this thing to the glory of Christ? If the answer is yes, then press forward, trusting that our loving Heavenly Father will direct our path and make us succeed according to his will, purpose, and plan. So, to conclude, we have seen three things from this passage. One, God closes certain doors to direct our path in the way he would have us to go. We are not always able to see the purpose he has for that. It may not always be what we prefer, but we must trust that he always does it for our best. Second, we see that God opens other doors, and when he does, we must be faithful to commit ourselves to obeying his direction with all industry and the strength that he provides. And three, we we see that as we make decisions each day, we should use the resources that God has provided us seeking to live in obedience to his word by the direction of his spirit in community with his people to the glory of his name. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we we recognize that we live in a world where decisions face us every day, and some of them are very hard. And Lord, as we look at your word here and we see that you have a purpose and plan in all things, we ask that you would give us the faith and the, and the strength to trust you, that as you close certain doors, that we will be patient to wait, and we, we will wait well. And, Father, I also pray that as, we, uh, as you open doors, that we will be faithful to walk through them. Lord, I pray that you will lead us by your Spirit and by your Word, by the fellowship we have together to walk in obedience to Christ. And, Lord, most of all, I pray that you will give us hearts to always trust him, Knowing that He loves us and you love us with an everlasting love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.